0: Welcome to the second episode of a special two-part series of The Climate Briefing, where I will be focusing on all things forests, conservation, natural resources, people, and planet. My name's Henry Thropp. I'm a research analyst here at Chatham House. I'll be guest hosting this podcast today before handing you back to your usual hosts in time for the next podcast. Last time out, we had interviews with experts on Ghana... On how to navigate natural resource management in the mining and agricultural sectors and conservation. We spoke about how some of the challenges faced by Ghana and the solutions will have ramifications in tropical forest countries around the world. At the center of this debate is a story about people. How do we build a case for sustainable resource management that works for communities around the world? In this episode, we will discuss how Indigenous peoples and communities are consulted and impacted in climate policy decision-making, why this is important, and how Indigenous consultation and representation can be improved. Today, we will hear extracts from two interviews with Ramsam Karmushu, who works at the Indigenous Movement for Peace Advancement and Conflict Transformation, Impact Kenya, an organization that works to secure recognition, inclusion, and well-being for indigenous peoples in Northern Kenya. We'll also hear from Oda Alma-Smith, who works at the Forest Peoples Programme, a human rights organization working with forest peoples and communities across the globe to secure their rights to their lands and their livelihoods. As a starting point for this discussion, I asked both about the role that indigenous people and communities play in global and local climate and environmental stewardship. The first voice you will hear is from Ramson, And
1: then, Erda. I could say uh, that there are quite a lot of research that has been done when it comes to biodiversity. Up to today, more than 75% or 80% of present available biodiversity is within the territories owned and managed by the indigenous peoples and local communities. Other studies have also shown that biodiversity degradation is happening globally at a very high alarming rate and at a slower rate in areas owned and managed by indigenous peoples and local communities. This reason shows that indigenous peoples and local communities have been living with nature, in harmony with nature, and have a lot of knowledge and capacity in managing their own natural resources. This is shown by the slow rate of biodiversity degradation in their areas, other than all other areas.
2: While constituting only around 5% of the global population, indigenous peoples manage around 25% of the world's land, which contains much of the planet's biodiversity and a big portion of carbon stored in soil and biomass as well. And indigenous peoples hold at least 36%, one study of someone, of the world's large, unbroken swaths of natural forests. So, linked to this, a growing body of research also demonstrates that, or it demonstrates that indigenous peoples with recognized tenure and forest management rights are some of the best forest protectors in the world. And there are many studies that could be cited, but. Uh, to give one Oda example, a study that and looks communities at the Colombian, consulted Brazilian and Bolivian Amazon found discussions on that climate an, f- the annual defor- deforestation and in about rate in forests where indigenous peoples and have secure tenure rights and climate, are like the about two to three diversity. times lower than in other similar lands in these countries, suggesting that secure tenure rights contributes to reducing deforestation in these areas. And as we know, protecting forests um, has an important climate effect.
0: Much of the climate or environmental calendar is geared around the climate and nature cops. I was interested in the extent to which indigenous communities have come to play a more meaningful role at these international negotiations or not,
2: and if headway had been made in recent years. Around 26, when that happened in Glasgow, and certainly after, I think we're seeing an increase in the awareness in international policy discourse about the vital role that Indigenous peoples play in addressing and adapting to climate change. And there is a plethora of new initiatives, especially around the the booming of voluntary carbon markets, but also biodiversity credits and offset markets that are seeking representatives from Indigenous peoples to sit on various multi-stakeholder bodies and steering groups. Um, That's one example. And at the UN level, there is now also, since the Paris Agreement was adopted, the Local Communities and Indigenous Peoples Platform, which um, is meant to provide guidance from Indigenous peoples and local communities to the UNFCCC process. So that's an important step in the US setting. But whether this... A big focus on engagement translated to action, either in international standard setting or processes on the ground to ensure that Indigenous peoples' rights are actually respected. The answer to that will depend on the different cases. However, I think it's safe to say that the very big focus on Indigenous peoples as stewards of nature does not always translate into real rights protections in various climate um, actions is that I think there can be a certain risk that a lot of the focus on engagement, which there certainly is a lot of de- these days, rather than really meaningful consultation, but that there is so much focus on the stewardship role of Indigenous people and the need for them to be involved in these actions that it could end up being used as a proxy for actual respecting rights and having very robust rights protections in the various policies. So... I think it's important that the former is happening, the focus on the importance of engagement, of course, but you have to also make sure that's just one step on the way of ensuring proper robust uh, safeguards for Indigenous people's rights in the different climate policies and actions.
1: There is really quite a lot of listening now to the Indigenous peoples and local communities. When I try to engage my elders who have been in negotiation in 1990s, for example, when uh, this uh, discussion started, the indigenous peoples and local communities were not in spaces to be listened. But today, indigenous peoples and local communities have also organized themselves, and they have strong bodies following, the, uh, following all these agendas. For example, the CPD, the 23 agendas that are there today, and uh, they have been 21 agendas. But uh, due to the negotiation of indigenous peoples and local communities, We now feel that uh, there is a correct or good language in all the targets. And that one shows me that we are being listened and the world is now recognizing the indigenous peoples and local communities. It is recognizing their knowledge through, for example, Article 8J. It is recognizing the flow of finance through the targets such as 15, 17, and 19 under the CBD. It's also recognizing the ownership and recognition of indigenous peoples' lands, territories and knowledge under target three. So I feel like we are being recognized today at the international level and also in the regional level. For example, the recent African protected areas Congress, the call to action was also a very supportive um, call to action to put people at the center of conservation. So we are moving and Of course, I expect that uh, in future, the knowledge will be respected. I will continue to have a very right play and we are moving into that direction. And uh, again, um, I'm also happy that a lot of researchers that are now coming to the communities to document uh, what works, they are really working with indigenous peoples and local communities to promote the indigenous people's knowledge and bring it forward in research papers. This one, all this encourages me And show me that uh, we are moving into the right direction and people will be living harmony with nature and we will be having right approaches um, in future. I
0: understood from this that meaningful engagement is making progress, but it certainly is not a substitute for implementing real rights protections or providing resources to support indigenous groups and communities in their livelihoods and work. I was interested in what the next stage of implementation and guarantees of rights could look like and who could help facilitate this.
2: A couple of strategies to mention to ensure that these rights are properly um, respected and protected in the various climate actions. The first step, actually, officially recognising and protecting in-laws, Indigenous peoples as legal owners of their customary lands, which is, as we know, a precondition for Indigenous peoples to maintain and strengthen their territorial governance systems through which they care for their lands. And of course, this is a struggle in many countries. So the UN has a role to play in future outcome decisions from the UNFCCC process to really continue exerting the pressure on the member or the state parties to clarify the expectations on them and their obligations that they have to step up and protect the rights of indigenous peoples in. Climate policies and actions and finance related to it, um, and then of course talking about this, it's really important to acknowledge the agency um, that indigenous all already are showing and have showed for a very long time in claiming their lands and their autonomous government, strengthening their territorial governance systems, despite very often no support from external actors and actually a lot of the time despite active pushback from external actors. And that brings me to a second kind of strategy or point for improvement, I think, to mention, which is talked about quite a bit these days, and I'm referring to direct funding or direct financing to Indigenous peoples. It's quite a hot term these days, and it refers broadly to funding that directly reaches projects led by or organizations run by Indigenous peoples, and that upholds the rights that are articulated within the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and this concept importantly acknowledges the critical roles that Indigenous peoples are playing in addressing the interrelated biodiversity, the certification and climate change crisis, and that the finance um, needs to target the enabling conditions for that important leadership that Indigenous peoples are showing. And so there's already significant recognition by some bilateral donors and philanthropists in, in the fact that, yeah, funding needs to reach the ground. And especially after COP26 and that what is very often talked about as the IPLC pledge, the Indigenous Peoples Local Communities Pledge, there's been a lot of focus on that topic of direct funding to get the funding to the right places and the right people. Because the focus on that pledge was $1.7 billion, US dollars, uh, for, to support the advancement of Indigenous Peoples and Local Communities forest tenure rights. And greater recognition and rewards for their role as guardians of the forests and nature. So this uh, funding was promised after a much quoted study by Rainforest Foundation Norway, which found that between 2011 and 2020, less than 1% of the ODA for climate mitigation adaptation went to projects supporting indigenous peoples and local communities' tenure and forest management. And indigenous peoples are responding to this focus on direct funding with a lot of thought leadership, initiatives, mechanism principles. And um, so it's important. And the, but the important trends running between many of these, I think, is the need to rethink the funding relationships of, and what the funding really is. So instead of thinking about funders and on one hand and beneficiaries on the other hand, they urged us to think in terms of equal partners that all have a lot to contribute to a common project, hundreds of money, indigenous peoples of knowledge and land, etc.
1: To be sincere, I think we are all clapping, And we always club whenever we have something good on the table in terms of a document. But the implementation is key. We are not seeing the implementation. So we still don't see the actions. The actions on the GPF, Cumulant Montreal GPF is not yet there. Also, when we were talking about the UNFCCC and the declarations, we were so happy when we have the, when we have all this put in place, but we have never seen the actions. So the actions are really quite key and very important. And for us, I will always want to say that when people talk about protection of biodiversity, conservation of biodiversity, it's also in a way we, we also feel like there is some kind of wrong approaches where people are focusing on rising ecosystems and things like that. For us, as indigenous peoples and local community who live in nature and depend with nature, all ecosystems are important. All landscapes are important. All ecological areas around the seven biocultural regions of the world are important. So when we are talking about financial flows, we are not talking about financial flows to the forest or thriving ecosystem. We are not talking about financial flows to protected areas. We are talking of financial flows to all areas, including areas that are owned and managed by indigenous peoples and local communities and also recognizing the inclusion of all in those areas, including women and youth, and also recognizing the generations to come. Because sometimes when we plan the people that are there, but as well, we need to think about the people who have gone, who are not there with us today, and their knowledge, the people who are living today, and the people who are going to come. I think it's very important to think in all levels.
0: Ramson's remark that we need to think about people today and people that are yet to come struck a chord. A theme that resonated through these interviews was that when we speak about Indigenous groups and communities, we are also speaking about individual people and families and their secure access to the lands that they live on. On this point, Ramson drew attention to conservation efforts in his work in northern Kenya and how nature conservation could go hand in hand with access
1: to lands. Yeah, when I talk about amplification of voices, I talk about knowledge of Indigenous peoples and This is very important. What is managing the world or in terms of policies is majorly uh, linked to the scientific knowledge and which is overrunning our own knowledge as indigenous peoples and local communities who have been living with nature. And the kind of conservation that is coming today is externally driven by policies and externally also driven by the actions that are being taken on the land. And I can tell you for sure that uh, the conservation narrative that we are experiencing mostly in Kenya, Africa, and all the other development countries of the world is that the narrative of protected areas, as an example, in Kenya has been created after we received a different type of governance in all these nationals. Beyond that, or before that, we have been living together with nature And we did not have a specific area that we call. This is a protected area for wildlife. And this is an area where we live for our own livelihood. All the areas were important for all of us. And we live together with biodiversity and nature. And the way we take care of our own livestock, the way we take care of our own belongings, is the same way we take take care of nature and wildlife. But when the external driven forces came in, They started showing us that you important people or you important wildlife stay there and you cruel people stay away from nature. Nature is so important to us. Without nature, there is no indigenous peoples and local communities. That is what supports our livelihood. That is where our home is. We live together in nature and we always say nature is us and we are nature. Without nature, there is no us, and without us, there is no nature.
0: I was keen to know more about good examples from the communities Ramson worked with in northern Kenya, of where external organisations had collaborated well with local Indigenous communities, where the collaborative relationship had gone beyond engagement and into implementation too.
1: There are really quite a number of examples to my knowledge, but none of them have been documented. And I will always uh, take you back, for example, I understand my own landscape quite well. And I come from a community conservancy known as Ilingwesi. The history of Ilingwesi is not well documented. Uh, People know into their minds and those people who come from the landscape, uh, like myself, and who have also sat with the indigenous peoples, uh, not the indigenous, but the elders of that community and discuss how for example, a community conservancy was started by Ilingwesi. I think uh, it, will, it will bring you um, on the table or us on the table that there are quite an, a number of discussions that went on before that conservation area was created. ingwesi has a conservation area of around um, uh, 8,000 acres um, acres of land. And they also have the another area of around the same which they divided their land into two and they have a living area where they have homesteads and they have uh the grass they grass their livestocking and they also have a conservation area where there is wildlife, but at the same time they still utilize the grass in those areas um and they have a small lodge. But the way it has been started uh has been so many years of um resistance from what is known as community conservation and uh, investment of having lodges and having other people that are doing tourism in that area. They have been resisting a lot because we neighbor, um, we neighbor settlers who who are remnants of the colonialism in Kenya. And whenever we see anyone coming to our land and talk about conservation, we feel like this also wants to take the small spaces that we have been left with. And of course there is a, a lot of resistance with a lot of, um, elders in, in, of, of that time, like from 1970s, 80s, until when they came to agree to create a conservancy of the Yaron, it is for them to manage, and it is for them also to manage a lodge. And we have also seen that the indigenous peoples due to that have a lot of capacity because the lodge that was created in 1995 was owned and managed by the indigenous peoples and local community of Inwesi. And it has been receiving the management of elders who have never gone to school for the last 20 years from 1996 to 2016 when they handed over to the youth who have gone to school. These elders have never gone to school, but they have managed a tourist facility that has received guests all over the world. I'm proud to say even uh, Prince William has stayed in our lodge in one of the years around 2002 or 2004 if I'm not wrong. And if you see a lodge like that has received guests all over the world and has received the management of the elders who have never gone to school, it shows you that people who are still crippling around the world and say the indigenous peoples do not have the capacity are quite wrong. When they are built and given the right the right information what to do, of course, they, they can manage their land and natural resources very well. And that could be one of the examples that shows me that when it was started, even if there was nothing known as free, prior and informed consent, those elders, through their resistance, made them to receive what is right and what, what works for them when it comes to conservation. And their land is not conserved for wildlife. It's conserved for them to use in their own livelihood, which is keeping of livestock, but still have wildlife in it. It's not fenced. The fencing of the land is under the community leadership, which creates laws, traditional governance, that is elders, and they they manage their own natural resources without fences. The fences remain in our own heads. Uh, That tells you between this area and this area, you're not going to graze there. Between this area and this area, you're grazing there today. You're grazing there for this week. You're grazing there for a month. But there's no area fenced. So that's how conservation is done in areas that are owned and managed by indigenous people through their own knowledge and supported by science.
0: Both Oda and Ramsen had pointed to the wellspring of research supporting the important role that indigenous communities play, but that research itself should lead to action with integrity. Doing so will challenge the traditional power models of funder and beneficiary, particularly when environmental stewardship done well benefits us all.
1: If the whole of northern Kenya or sub-Saharan Africa or any land in Kenya, in, in, in the landscape that's owned and managed by indigenous peoples could be covered by perennial grass, that is our priority. Because whenever we have grass, our lives will be good and the life for biodiversity, other things that depend on biodiversity, such as wildlife, will also thrive. So for us, we are trying as much as possible to support communities, to really rehabilitate their land and plant grass and manage those natural resources to be more and more supporting their own livelihood. So I think those are the things that we need to be discussing. Like what are the things that we need to see? What are the... Research is important, but people cannot eat research. But when you put actions on the ground, things will change. And people will appreciate more. It's not really. For me, I I see people talking about finance flow. Let the finance flow and do something. Actions on the ground that will leave us enjoy our nature and enjoy the benefits of nature. And not receiving uh, receiving grants and money all the time. We can be self-sufficient if we rethink on how we we do to the landscape and how we are going to benefit on the landscape. And how... People and nature will benefit. Of course, for us, we want to see thriving ecosystems. Well, my
2: first response to that would be there is definitely a need for rethinking and reframing some of this first. First, I think it's just important to think of, I think I mentioned this already in a response to a different question, but the, the fact that we need to go away from the thinking of donors and beneficiaries, for example, or people who pay and people who receive remembering that the people who pay very often are northern governments or foundations or even companies these days trying to offset off using carbon offsets buying carbon credits for example i think that in in that conversation there is a lot to be said for thinking of compensation of the work for the work that indigenous peoples have been doing for for thousands of years and continue to do and not not thinking of them necessarily as beneficiaries. They it's yeah, a compensation more or less for their work and just recognition of, of of their lives and of their knowledge as well. So that would be the first one. And I think I also just stick up in, I also don't think it's very helpful to I think to have business in mind when you're thinking about what's useful climate finance, for example. You're thinking about Carbon markets, they might deliver some funding to the ground, but also it seems like the the motor of the thought of these market mechanisms to some extent is that, yeah, they're also good for business. Anyway, so I'm not not—I'm just saying that we should get to the real bottom of, of what, what this is really about, which is about an enabling self-determined priorities of indigenous peoples to come to fruition in terms of how they manage their lands. But I think... Yeah, so the reconceptualization is important. And then in terms of any finance or any project or any climate action and the finance that enable it, really what we need to get to, where we need to get to is that not no climate action actually will take place unless on the indigenous peoples' customary lands unless they have given their free power informed consent for that to happen. I think we're quite far away from that at the moment. So that's a guiding torch again. Like that's really, that would be best practice and in line with international human rights law, et etc. And so for example, also if a community or a people has, if there is an agreement on of consent, that con, that agreement very often contains conditions. Again, yes, this can go ahead based on these and these conditions if they are, if if they are responded to. Yeah. There is the need for consent in the beginning and that there is also a need to make sure that the agreements are actually upheld throughout the, the lifespan of these some of these climate actions.
0: Unfortunately, we're coming to an end of our allotted time for this episode of the Climate Briefing. I want to give the last words to Oda and Ramson. And before I do just that, I want to say a final thank you to your usual hosts, Anna and Anthony for encouraging a Forest Government's temporary takeover of the Climate Briefing podcast. To Abdul, Tiago, Charlotte and Annam too, for your help in making the podcast happen. And to our guests, certainly friends of the podcast now, Oda and Ramson. As always, thank you to the listeners for tuning in and keeping the conversation going. We've spoken today about how crucial Indigenous groups are, not just in terms of making climate or environmental action happen, but creating the right type of climate action that really moves the world in not just a low carbon direction, but one in which we'd all want to live in. But that's only half the story. Climate action must come hand in hand with supporting the rights and wishes of Indigenous groups and communities. To finish the podcast, I asked Oda and Ramson for their key messages, maybe based on the conversation today or otherwise conversations that they have on a daily basis. What is the really critical message or questions that this podcast should impart? And on that note, I want to say, thank you very much. See you next time.
2: Yeah, the message I would like to impart would be, if you're thinking about climate action, actions that need to be taken to mitigate or adapt to climate change. A lot of those actions depend on lands being kept from deforestation, lands being restored projects where you were suggested to to store carbon under the ground renewable energy projects agro uh, yeah sustainable agriculture there is yeah all of these depend on land and very often those lands will be the homes of indigenous peoples and those peoples will have like i said at the beginning managed and taken care of those lands for millennia And so I think it's easy to think of actions that need to happen very quickly for this world to go no carbon. (laughs) But at the same time, what you said, it's important to make sure that we do that in the right way. And the actions that we take, the climate actions that we take, they shouldn't just make sure that there is no harm done to these communities, but because they have so much knowledge about how to live harmoniously with nature, they should also be very critical voices and participants in constructing this new world. And at the same time, I guess it's important to say as well that I think some of the climate conversations, all, all the focus on engagement with Indigenous peoples that, that is happening these days, it's extremely welcome. But at the same time, I think we have to make sure that we don't uh, put the Indigenous people up as the, you're going to fix all of our climate sins by not doing anything to your land you you're so there is a history of industrialization of which indigenous peoples have a minuscule contribution and then to i think i think my last point is just it's really good and that the climate crisis in a way has brought so much attention to the importance of the knowledge and the rights of these people but at the same time they have these rights regardless these rights are protected in the international law And they are, uh, yeah, I don't think they should only be used instrumentally for the climate purpose.
1: Oh, that's a big question, you know, um, a very big ask. But uh, all the same, I'll try to say that um, when we talk about climate change and climate action, I would like to tell everyone who listens to this podcast that when we talk about conservation of nature and biodiversity, I would like to everyone to know that when it comes to conservation of lands and ecosystem, to us indigenous peoples and local communities, all landscapes are very important. And whether I live in a desert or a well-protected area, an arsal or a semi-arid area, uh, we want all those landscapes thriving. Ecosystem, And whenever um, we think about finance, we want the finance flow to go to all levels, including the grassroots and the very, very unreachable communities. We want this to change in each and every uh, kind of livelihood. And then the other thing is our rights. We really uh, talk about the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities. To me, in many cases, I don't care uh, who implements what, who gets the bigger uh, shank of uh, finance in implementation and the way you want to use it, you can use it. But uh, the thing that I really want to see being enjoyed more is the rights uh, being enjoyed by the people, uh, having the land and using their own natural resources without any kind of interference. And uh, the last thing is our knowledge is very important. We want it active in the landscapes. And by meaning that, uh, by saying that, we want our knowledge to be documented, preserved, and regenerated in our own areas. When we talk about uh, the knowledge today, we find them in museums very far away from communities, which is not even beneficial to those communities. Instead of creating such a kind of museums and showcase knowledge of indigenous peoples and document them and take them away, these museums should be in the communities to influence their own to influence their own people and continue to ask, inspire them living together with nature and not extracting knowledge and taking it away from the indigenous peoples and local community who can use it to people who do not even need it if they want to see it and want to experience it they can go to those communities and see and it's also a good advantage for them because or for the communities because they get something as a payment for someone visiting their learning centers, for example, where they teach their children or knowledge. And they also get something and and, and enjoy as a pleasure. And not going into museums, like from the local level to the national level or the international level where we have uh, artifacts of the Maasai, for example, at a museum in Europe or at a museum in the, in America or In North America or different places in the world, we can have this documented and stay in the community. Whoever wants to see can visit them and see. The knowledge is very important and should be put in action.